Happy New Year, everybody, and thank you for all the good feedback on my last podcast with Dr. Chris Ryan. We co-released that episode, and Chris has a Reddit page called Tangentially Speaking, where a few thousand people chime in, and there was a lot of good um, good chatter about our conversation on Tangentially Speaking's Reddit page, so you can head over there if you'd like to get involved. This conversation is with Ryan Levingston. Ryan is a sailor and is known for his notable achievements in ocean adventure sports and emergency first response, despite having an untreatable genetic disease that causes his muscles throughout his body to continuously weaken. Here is how the disease works in Ryan's own words. The way that it works is it causes muscles throughout my body to continuously get weaker over time. And it kind of goes in stages. So I'll be... I'll have a level of ability for a while, and then I'll have a big loss in, in, in one area or another. There's no way to know which area is going to go next. There's no way to know how fast it's going to go. There's no way to know ultimately what it means down the line. He and his wife, Nicole, are in their fourth year of a voyage through the remote islands and atolls of the tropical South Pacific. Ryan uses the attention his story receives in his popular YouTube channel, To Afloat, that's T-W-O, Afloat, to explore themes of adventure, environmental responsibility, love, culture, courage, and other wild thoughts that cross his mind as he and Nicole explore the world's oceans. Uh, they both came over to my house in Santa Cruz, we sat down with a cup of coffee on my couch and we chatted for a little while and I enjoyed and appreciated Ryan's honesty um, and storytelling skills. So I'll see you all after New Year's and be sure to get in touch with Ryan if uh, if you liked this conversation. He is on Facebook. So let's get it going. Happy New Year's, everybody. I'll see you soon. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah, that's a. Would that be to, would that be accurate to say? That's a good way say? to put it. My okay. friend, um, a good friend I grew up with, he he likes to say that I can't make a peanut butter sandwich without it trying to be the best sandwich it's ever been made. But I think it it relates to. I was listening to your podcast last night, number seventy two, with Greg Long. Fantastic podcast. If you haven't heard it yet, anybody who's listening, check it out. But in that podcast, you talked about how you thought the key to happiness, I think it was you talking, uh, had a lot to do with improving your ability to sort of maybe experience the world, like your your capability, you know, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's about f- like finding shit you suck at and getting good at it. Yeah, it's a good way. And, to- and like little short-term goals. And, and, and you're no stranger to this, setting a goal and then getting after it and seeing what, like figuring out the puzzle, figuring out how you're going to solve that puzzle. Absolutely. And that sort of was, I think, my guiding uh, sort of compass for a long time is I would find an area that I was passionate about, something that I wasn't good at, and I would work very hard to get better at it. And a lot of it was because I enjoyed the activity and a lot of it was uh, because I wanted to uh, benefit from the results. For example, I got as good as I could at, at EMS so that I could be a better 
EMT and help people more. You know, it was like you were talking about that also in the podcast, how rewarding it is to have that capability to be able to um, provide help when somebody else might not be able to, or teaching. You talked about that in the podcast. Right. You know, I, I certified instructor for, you know, kiteboarding, sailing. I was teaching, serve, you know, and that was a big part of my life for a long time. Um, but one thing that I think is, is I, I don't fully agree with the, what you, you did say, not, not that you were wrong, sure, no. but you were saying that, that that was sort of a, what you think leads to happiness. And I think it does to a degree, but maybe one thing that I've sort of starting to understand now, maybe a little bit is that that leads to uh, maybe a measure of contentment and, and sort of happiness as you jump from stone to stone to stone. But really at some point, even if you gain those abilities, you lose them. And, and that's something that I've become really good at is, is loss, uh, through my progression of my disease and through getting older and just through being, you know, not 20 anymore, you know what I mean? As you get older. Right. So I think that really, uh, it's not just learning how to gain those skills and abilities, but it's also learning how to not be attached to them, learning how to let go of, of that same good feeling that you had. It's not even necessarily letting go of that, but it's more being mindful that you feel good because you're attached to these capabilities and, and being okay with them going away. Yes. Give me a little bit more on that. Like what are examples in your life that you have had to let go of activities that Jeez. you got good at. Well, the big one, um, is surfing, uh, on a regular board, you know, uh, it, it's even now, like I'm trying to like talk slow. So my eyes don't water too much, you know, I, you know, it's, it's surfing is such a, it means so much, you know, and, um, to, to have lost that. I, I remember being like, I guess I was like 15 or something. And I remember sitting in my room at night and, we just had a great surf, you know, all day long. It was one of those days where you're sunburned and, you know, and, uh, and I remember just, just laying in bed and being like, this is awesome. And then, then I thought to myself, man, like, I don't want to grow up. And then I was like, wait a minute, I can do this even when I grow. And then it hit me. I'm like, I can surf my, the rest of my life. I can have this experience, this, you know, I didn't understand it the same way I do now, but I can, I can surf, you know, and not just do tricks, you know, surf the, the bigger meaning of it. And, and, uh, it wasn't true. Um, I can't surf and I can't move through that world in the same way that I was. I can't use the same equipment and it's, I can ride bodyboards, I can body surf and all of those have their own, um, sort of unique awesomeness to them. Uh, obviously there's the fun factor, but it's something deeper than that. But, uh, that I lost that, you know, and, uh, it's, it's not just, the view of standing on a wave and the sort of that maneuvering, although that's a big part of it, but it's also the community. Uh, you try riding a bodyboard at a break. Like, you know, I paddle out now I've been surfing what 35 years or something like that. And I go to a place that I don't know with my muscle loss, I kick out on a bodyboard kind of slowly, a little bit awkwardly. And everybody immediately, the judgment is there, even if they're the most open-minded Gandhi would judge <laughs> <Right>. me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it's like growing up in Santa Cruz, man, it's like it's, it's instilled into us from a young age. Like anything different than a high-performance shortboard mm -hmm. is so lame. And it's like this is a good conversation to have because... Clearly, as you grow up, you hear what you understand about the world and what you understand about just enjoyment and how to move through life with more grace, hopefully expands. Yeah. And you've 
been forced into those reflective moments. Yeah, it's not just, I think, a matter of learning how to expand, but it's also learning how to let go. Another thing you talked about last night, not attaching your own sense of self-worth and and and, and uh, sort of how well you enjoy your experience right. or whatever it is you're doing based on other people's perspectives, perceptions, whatever the word is. And that's something that I think as humans we're programmed to, to some degree. So you always are going to be aware and respond to how people think about you. That's normal. And I think that for me, that's been especially hard because I lost the ability to surf. Right. And now I've sort of lost that connection to the tribe in a sense because mm -hmm. of the judgments that you just talked about. But then when somebody finds out the story and they hear about, oh, okay, this is why you're writing the boogie board and here's your background and so forth. Then it's like the opposite, like oh, any wave you want, bro. You right, know, it's your right. way, you know? Um, well, I, I don't um, want to get too deep into that because I'm sure you've given the story a thousand times. But will you just give the abbreviated version of um, like what happened to you and, and where the muscle loss is and kind of the state that, that you're in right now? Yeah, sure. Um, California. No, right. the doom doom. No, no. Please edit that. <laughs> no, the uh, I know what you mean, and thank you for asking. I'm I'm I I don't mind talking about it at all. I think that the more people are willing to talk about their their warts as well as their you know perfect hair, like the better the world is. You know, um, I have a a disease called FSH muscular dystrophy. It's a genetic disease. Uh, it's it's not rare, but it's certainly a lot less common. Like a lot of people have never heard of it. Um, it it is the way that it works is it causes muscles throughout my body to continuously get weaker over time, and it kind of goes in stages. So I'll be I'll have a level of ability for a while, and then I'll have a big loss in 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 one area or another. There's no way to know which area is going to go next. There's no way to know how fast it's going to go. There's no way to know ultimately what it means down the line. Um, in the worst case scenario, people with this disease usually end up um, not being able to close their eyes or smile like the muscles in their weak become too face or, or in their face become yeah. too weak. Uh, they lose the ability to, to kiss, you know, um, uh, certainly lose the ability to uh, walk and use their arms and things like that. In the best case, you know, sometimes people have it and you don't even know they've got it. It just progresses really slow. It's different for everybody. There's no known treatment. There's no cure. Uh, it started showing when I was in my mid twenties, I'm 45 now, uh, started showing in my mid twenties and I noticed it because I started losing muscles, uh, in my chest. I started riding bigger boards. Like my short board went from six Oh to six, two to six, five. And I thought, and also I noticed in my legs, one of my legs was getting, uh, smaller than the other. And I thought, well, I'm just, you know, I'm alling too much off of one foot. Like I'm just skating too much or, you know, with surfing, I thought, I thought my shoulders were rounding forward and I thought it was just an imbalance. So I'd started doing more pushups to try to compensate. And eventually the dog went to a doctor when my chest literally disappeared in a period of, of weeks. And, uh, he says, yeah, you've got this disease. I said, well, what does this mean? You know, here I am, I'm surfing constantly. I just changed my major to outdoor recreation and, uh, I'd found kind of my calling. I wanted to introduce, you know, the natural world to people through action sports and activity and stuff like this. I thought that would be the way to change the world in a positive, you know, and, uh, and he says, no, that's all unrealistic. You need to quit all of the stuff you're doing and learn something useful like key punch. Those are his words. What, what key punch? What's that? It's a kind of an archaic term for like typing programming. Oh God. Yeah. He's like, no, no, he was very clinical. You know, you need to learn something useful like key punch. 
And I said, well, why? And he says, well, because when you do active stuff, you tear your muscles down. That's the nature of exercise. And then they rebuild stronger. And that's why you can become more fit through weightlifting and so forth. And he says, but your muscles can't rebuild. So if you do this active stuff, you could cause a radically accelerated loss in your muscle. And with it, loss of, of, of ability, including daily life stuff, you know, brushing your teeth, washing your hair. And I was like, oh man, that's kind of heavy. Like I just discovered what it is I want to do. I'm this active surfer. I was leading rock climbing trips. I was teaching kayaking. I mean, I was doing all this stuff and thriving. And then this guy says, no, you need to quit all of that. Like, so I was driving home from the doctor and I said, you know what? If I'm going to lose this stuff anyways, and maybe this was the denial phase, you know, you go, I don't know. But I just said, if I'm going to lose that stuff anyways, I'm going to lose it doing the stuff I love to do and see where that adventure leads me. So I got even more active. I pulled out of school. I spent um, a few months on Tavarua. Roseman was, was kind enough to bring me out and help with the boats a little. Um, like your, your friend last night on that podcast. Again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, moved to Hawaii for a while. I was like, well, I better, this is it. I drop in now or never, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I kind of, I did all these sort of things that were on my list and I discovered that, yeah, I was losing strength, but in some areas I was able to compensate by getting better at technique or strengthening other areas like cardiovascular. I could get better cardiovascularly even though I was losing muscle. Okay. Um, so I was, I was losing strength, but in some ways gaining ability. And even, even regardless, the experiences I was having and the ability to sort of, I think a lot of people don't do this stuff out of fear. You know, They're afraid to really do what they want to do. Um, but I had a good excuse, right? You know, even my parents were like, that's great. You're pulled out of school. Absolutely. We love it. You know, how many right. parents are going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It you know? All of a sudden, like, I'm sure your whole life, um, just the, the time scale of when you get to do things changes dramatically. Yeah. Like, I had how, like your schedule clears up real quickly. Yeah. Instead of being like a bum or this is unrealistic, everyone was like, that's inspirational. Right. That's great. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. yes, it is. Thank you. I'm inspiring <laughs> yeah. people. <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> I'm no hero. I'm just giving back, trying to go get right. barreled. Right. <laughs> exactly. Everybody, there has to be like a purpose to it or it's not valid. You know? Right. I was just doing what I, what I was called to do. You know, I, I, I'm a person who loves to move. That's the way I interact with my world is through a lot of times sports or activity and things like that. And, 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 and that's, those are the moments when I am the most clear and understand things the best. And, and I was just doing that. It was my meditation. It was my, I'm just that. And, uh, and I was just being, being that. And, but I had this excuse. So I think that was an advantage that the disease gave me, you know, and then, but the, but the challenge of course is over time, as I lost more and more muscle and strength, uh, I started losing those activities. So now on one hand, I have this sort of, um, you know, get out of jail card to go and live my life. And on the other hand, as I was doing that, they were being taken away from me one, one after another. Um, surfing, like we said, was the big one, but also swimming. Um, you know, now, now I'm at the point where, since you asked earlier, I can't lift my arms over shoulder high. Um, I can kind of throw them up, but I can't hold them there. I can't do a single sit up or a push up or a, or a pull up. I can't stand on my toes. I discovered um, this week I can't lift my leg to take my sock off. That's a new one. Um, sometimes if I'm tired, like um, not not physically tired, like muscles tired, but tired like not sleep tired or under stress, uh, my legs will buckle. I'll just fall because um, I've lost a lot of strength in my legs. Uh, you know, and and as as these losses were happening, I would 
lose activities kind of one after another. Like for example, surfing was a big one, but I also lost, I was 10 years on the ambulance, but then when it started becoming more difficult to do CPR, then I had to pull myself out of the field uh, before I put anybody else at risk. And, um, I didn't think that was going to, I thought it was going to be my ability to lift. That was going to, you never know what's going to go. Yeah. With surfing, I thought it would be my ability to paddle, but it was actually initially my ability to pop up was what, was what limited me. How do you think that, um, being on an ambulance and having medical training, uh, affected you when you learned that you had, um, muscular dystrophy? Oh, I, I was diagnosed way before I worked on the ambulance. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you knew that you had this. And so, all right, so let's let's flip that question around. Like, how do you think that that impacted your ability to see people or deal with people on the ambulance, if at all? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure, to tell you the truth. Uh, I don't I didn't know that I really... I didn't think about it ahead of time. You know, for, for me, the progression was this. Okay, so I was doing all these active things, right? And I get diagnosed with the disease, told, quit all of that, said, you know, F you, and started doing them like a right. hundred times more. Realized I wasn't having this catastrophic loss. So came back and and that's when I got into the cycling and triathlon stuff and the scientists were tracking me and all that. So that went on for a while. Then I lost the ability to run. And, and so with that, lost that career. So that was a big transition. I said, I want to get back in the water. And I had lost surfing already, but... How long were you doing triathlons for? Uh, Nicole, how long was I doing triathlons? Like five or six years? I think I did six, maybe four. Yeah, I did like, I did, well, four, four or five years of triathlon and a couple of years of cycling. And okay. And this is after you were diagnosed? Yeah, well well after. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of lost the ability to surf. And I, I, I but to back up just slightly with, with cycling, I was, I was in, that was my thing in high school. You know, surf, I was a surfer and then in the off season for cycling, I'd surf and then off season for surfing, I'd race bikes and I wanted to be a pro, you know, like Greg Lamond, Lance Armstrong, unfortunately, Lance Armstrong, you know, but, but that was sort of my, um, in fact, we used to race together a lot. We were the same kind of era. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I was doing okay. I was, you know, state champion in Florida and I was on a pro development team and, and I would travel during the summers and race all over the nation and, and things were going well. And I, all of a sudden the year when I was going to transition and this was when you sign your first pro contract and you sort of like the minor leagues, you know, um, that's when the disease started, but we didn't know it at the time. And my results kind of started steadily dropping for no reason. And I just had to leave cycling. Uh, so I decided, well, I guess I'll just go to college. You know, San Diego state was playboys top party school. So I picked San Diego, their surf there, you know? So I went, went to college for a while and I was kind of just wandered around aimlessly, just surfing a lot and not, you know, 0.4 GPA, just totally, no idea what I was doing and until I discovered this outdoor recreation stuff we were talking about. And, and then I went, wow, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be, this is my way of influencing positive change in the world and, and what makes me feel right. And my, the way I want to move through my world. And I started doing that stuff with unbridled passion. GPA went up to 3.8, you know, uh, just started killing it, became a scuba instructor and started leading kayaking trips and became a sailing instructor and just started like, like you were saying, picking up skills and just, just yeah. knocking them down. Isn't it interesting how when you find something you like, all of a sudden you get like, get good at it? You're talking it's about it. like your GPA. As soon as you find something that you're into, it doesn't feel like work. So you're willing to put way more time into it. And then as a result, you get way better at it. It's true. And I think that if more people would just not be worried about if 
you know, people know what they want to do, but I think people are afraid like, well, is that what I should be doing? Is that, I don't know if that's what I'm doing. Just do it and you'll kill it at it. And then everyone will go, wow, that's great that you do that. You're really good at it. You know, you just got to do it and it just works. And people just, we can talk about that and fear ad nauseum. Um, we God, there's so many amazing tangents we can go into, but just to quickly finish the answer to your question, you know, so, uh, was doing all that, then bang, it diagnosed with the disease, right? Start losing muscle. Um, before too long, I lost the ability to surf. So now, what now? I've lost rock climbing. I've lost surfing. I've lost cycling, you know? So I said, well, I'm going to get back on a bike and just kind of, you know, see if I can just ride for fun. Maybe I just need to do these things for fun and learn that I could spin the pedals faster and use my cardiovascular instead of my leg strength. So I went from just like, well, let's just see if I can ride around and maybe get fit to, well, maybe I can do a, an easy race, you know, and see what happens. And then I didn't, I didn't know if I could hold myself up on the handlebars. And then that year I actually won the state championships in California against able-bodied cyclists. Whoa. Yeah, it was. And that was to me, uh, an epiphany, you know, uh, like, wait a minute here, there's other ways you can do this stuff. There's, you don't have to just do it the way that you know, everybody does by training and getting your muscles big and da, da, da. You know, I'm sure there's an element of luck also, but regardless, it uh, like, a, you know, light bulbs went off. So I said, well, let's go on the bike and see how far I can take it. We were talking earlier, you know, taking things as far as you can, the peanut butter sandwich. So I started racing more and more and having better and better results as I was losing more and more muscle. Um, you know, it, without getting too technical into the cycling stuff, uh, eventually I transitioned into Paralympics, which is, for people with disabilities and it's the same as the olympics basically except you're put into a category of other people who they might not have the same manifestation of disability but they have the same overall level of effect on their ability to participate in that sport so it's a level playing field and then you go out and you compete uh on that on that level so you're not so you're competing against people who don't necessarily also have muscular dystrophy but are on the same athletic ability as you uh, yeah. or, or like how does how what would a race actually look like yeah well what they do is they they determine what's called your functional ability um and to do that they take the activity that you're doing and they put you through a series of sort of an examination by professional physical therapists, doctors, and, and they have a very objective criteria. And they say like, for example, can you hold yourself up on the handlebars? This many points. Do you have both of your legs, you know, to put to the pedals this many points. Uh, and then they you get sort of a kind of a score, almost like a handicap in golf or something. And then you compete against people who are in a similar score as you, so to speak. And that's a very simplified version of what's sure. called functional classification. But it's a way to quantify disability, uh, which is a whole nother tangent. But like people always ask me all the time, like, like, like who's, you know, like, well, you must see, you know, Bethany or Jeff Denholm and, and it must be so inspiring to you because they're also disabled. And I'm like, it's night and day. <laughs> you know right. I mean? Yeah. That's, that's a lot different, right? It is because from a functional standpoint, when it comes to surfing, you can quantify. This is this makes people uncomfortable when you talk about comparing. But the fact is, in surfing, they are. I am more quote quote disabled than they are by far. Not even close. They can paddle. They can stand up. You know. But if it came to playing piano, maybe or tying a shoe or something like that, then technically they would be more. You know, because you got to take the activity and measure the person's functional ability to perform that particular activity if you're going to make a comparison of disability. 
Does that make sense? Yes, yes, that does. Would you s- and and most of the people in Paralympics, I would guess, are were former athletes before they either had an accident or something that they were born with. Is that? Um, it's true? about it's about fifty fifty. Uh, I've competed with guys who were former professionals and then maybe had a limb amputated, and I've competed with people who never even knew they were athletic at all until they, you know, had their disability or their injury. Mostly it's a traumatic injury, you know, that, that, that leads people into this, the stuff. And then they went, well, what activities are available to me? And then they discovered it's right. almost like, like me, they had their excuse to not chase the white picket fence thing, you know, and go out and do what they really wanted to do. Yeah. So we were talking before we went on about, um, I think I mentioned how a lot of big wave surfers are very experience driven people. That's why I like hanging out with them. So like, I find that that's a similar personality trait with a lot of them. Would you say that there is a similar personality trait for people who are in the Paralympics that you've noticed? No. No? Uh, well, first of all, it's really hard to generalize because... Totally. It's it, all different kinds of people. So many different sports and, and you know, cycling, unfortunately, had an older style of classification where they would take all the amputees and put them together and all the people in wheelchairs and put them together and then, you know... Uh, but most other Paralympic sports do the classification like we talked about. But I think uh, to to answer your question, uh, which I don't remember specifically. Well, it's, yeah, it's just like what's are there similarities Got um, it. that that you've found from being inside that yeah, world? Here's the thing, and again, this is going to make some people uncomfortable. But I've been in this game for a long time now, and for me, I've had the very unique gift of being able to experience it as a mostly able-bodied person. And then as the disease progressed, gone through the stages to where most recently I I competed in, in sailing on the Paralympic level and, um, and, and I was classified as basically the same level as somebody who uses a wheelchair, but also has their arms impacted, you know, to some degree, which is considered a pretty significant level of disability when it comes to sailing. But I think that in in disabled athletics, the you have a lot of people who are sort of not, I don't want to say new to the game, but they didn't really discover it until after they had their disability, or maybe they had their disability, and then suddenly now they're this disabled athlete, and they're kind of almost stuck because you get propped up, and, and especially if you have something really obvious, like you're missing an arm or you're using a wheelchair, you know, you can go out and like, you know, face plant into the sand and everyone goes, that's so inspiring. Good for you. You're amazing. You know, and they get all the sponsors and all this stuff. And, and I think people get stuck in that because now they have to, they go, wow, this is a, if I go out and face plant in the sand, I get this feedback. Yeah. And they're already dealing with the issues of, of my disability. What does that mean for me and my identity? And I've lost this and insecurity about body image and all the other stuff. And then they have this really rewarding kind of almost, like opiate being being you know oh yeah dumped on them 100 percent. yeah i've never really thought about that but i'm sure that's super true because it's like you leave one identity behind right and you get a new one right and like everyone loves that about you like yeah. it's, it's inspiring like what you're talking about is like it there's no other way to go about it is like you think about because hearing your stories i think damn, like this makes me, you know, it evokes gratitude. It evokes like, God, I just want to get out there and go do some shit, which is super valuable for you to be telling these stories 
Yeah. But I, I could see it being easy to get wrapped up in that identity as well, which can be destructive there's no matter what it is that you get into there's an able-bodied parallel i think and um i can't speak to this from firsthand experience but it seems to me uh that this is very similar to maybe a woman who has what is generally considered like an, a very attractive figure or or whatever who's who prances around like so like take surfing for example okay there's a lot of companies where the marketing uh, people don't have the courage to go much deeper than what elicits an immediate sort of primal response. And they just, it's all about just selling more stuff. So they're going to find the woman who, you know, struts around in her little bikini. Maybe she can surf, maybe better than some better than others, but she smiles and she likes to wear a G string and she surfs good. And then bang, that's our girl, you know? And I think that a lot of times these women, there's, there's a hell of a lot more to them, but they, get that feedback. You know what I mean? So they, they're like, well, okay, I prance around in my bikini. I get the sponsors. I can travel the world and they justify it as, well, I'm really empowered because I'm, you know, using my body to prey on men's weaknesses or whatever <laughs> it is. You know what I mean? And okay. Who am I to say whether that's empowered or not? Right. But it, oh, but it's, it, uh, it flattens them yes. as people, right? Because they're not being encouraged to pursue other aspects of their personality or like really push because, because they're getting this feedback loop on a certain aspect of them. Well, they're they're being defined by a uh, physical attribute, a tangent. They're being described by one dimension, and I think that that happens uh, even amongst um, male surfers as well. Maybe like, okay, I'm just a big wave guy, or I'm a whatever, you know. But I think what's what's inspiring to me about companies like Patagonia and so forth that look into their ambassadors for something deeper than just that uh quick fix you know like like it's not just about the you know hot chick in a bikini saying chicken intentionally there you know Uh, or the you know but but i think when it comes to disability the problem is is that now now when you have the, the the female thing companies get it now more and they're starting to understand that that it's it, it doesn't take as much of a courageous leap to sponsor a woman who might not be stereotypically as much eye candy, but who has a lot more depth and her surfing is more is more dynamic and she's more passionate and a better communicator and and sort of realize that she is actually a complete person, not just a nice ass. You know what I mean? Right. So that's that's not a hard leap for most companies to make these days. But in the disabled world, it's the opposite. We're still stuck in being. Uh, little girls in hot bikinis because they look for the person who's missing the arm or missing the leg or using the wheelchair. Who cares if they can surf or had any depth of experience or can communicate or whatever they are inspiring just because boom, here they are. And, uh, you know, even- You're co- it's, it's also like the companies are kind of commodifying yes. you, right? It's Absolutely. like, and, and it's a very easy story if you're a marketing person to hop on it's like it's not a it's not a controversial issue that your company is diving into it's like oh of course like right now like hp is associated with inspiration here we go right Right. exactly and and i think that it's starting to change there are companies that are starting to have the courage to recognize that it's not the the it's the athlete that you're sponsoring not the disabled disability just like you're sponsoring the athlete not the ass when it comes to women there's a deeper message there's a deeper um, benefit there's a deeper emotional response they can elicit out of their customers than what they're getting just by dangling this little eye candy thing in in front and uh that i mentioned patagonia specifically because 
they, you know, I think they get it when it comes to, to the women, especially now, and they have this diversity, but they not yet for athletes, there's a noted lack of representation. And it's not, I don't think because they're excluded exclusionary or anything like that. They just hadn't given it any consideration, sure. but then you've got companies like air rush kiteboarding, for example, uh, air rush kiteboarding is, they're one of the top, you know, performance brands of kiteboards and kiteboarding, by the way, for me is like, that's my surfing now. You know, I, I love it. It, it, it. So you can kiteboard still. Yeah. Cause okay. you're wearing a harness around right. your waist. The harness takes the load of the kite. Right. And with that, I can go out on a little five ten surfboard, you know, it's like toe surfing, but you don't even have to hold the line cause the you're connected and you're going out when it's windy. So nobody's surfing. And if they are, they shouldn't be, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're, and you're able to now ride waves, not the same, but pretty close. And it, and it, you know, it just opens up this, freedom on the water and another way to move through the world and experience. And then you can jump and you're flying 20 feet in the air. I mean, kiteboarding is absolutely mind-blowingly phenomenal. It's even if I still had all my muscle, I hope I just oh, I'm so grateful that I've discovered kiteboarding, you know? And anyways, this company air rush makes equipment. And I first got excited about them because I had a friend who worked there and I kind of, you know, they've been around forever, you know, but they, um, you know, I'm, I, you know, like Patagonia, Patagonia, pays a lot of attention to where their products come from and how do they offset the impact. Airrush does the same for kiteboarding. Like every kite or board that they sell, they plant a tree and raise it to maturity in this mangrove swamp, you know, and that offsets 20 tons of carbon dioxide. You know, making a surfboard uses 50 kilograms of carbon dioxide if it's a polyester board. But then you can even reduce that by, for example, using bioresins and EPS cores, which are recyclable and much stronger, so it takes less resin. Anyways, Airrush is conscientious to all that, so I sort of kind of started following them, and I came to them and said, hey, listen, I would... I, I can kite. Okay. You know, but here's my story. And, and here's that, like, like I would really like to kind of, you're doing this great stuff environmentally and you're making really good equipment that lasts a long time. And like, just like, like I buy Patagonia clothing. I'm not a sponsored guy by Patagonia, but I support what they do. And I think that I have a little bit of a platform through my story. And if I can use that to encourage people to, you know, in that way, sort of the all ships rise. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So do you kiteboard a lot in Tahiti? Yeah. All the time. That's the spot. Well, no, I mean, not necessarily. Or that's like one spot that you. French Polynesia. French Polynesia. Okay. Yeah. It's a trade wind spot, kind of like Hawaii. So there's, there's commonly wind. Yeah. You know? So it's a great spot for kiting in general. So what does a, a day in your life look like when you're out there uh, in French Polynesia? Uh, yeah, I just can I just quickly sure. finish. I yeah, yeah. Kinda, sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to. You got me going because yeah, I'm just no, frothing keep, on kiting. Keep, keep it going. Yeah. I just wanted to. The, the, the reason I was going off about Air Rush like that yeah. was because I did go to them and I said, "Hey, listen, I would, I would like to represent your brand. Maybe there's a way we can work together." Sure. And they had the courage to recognize that even though I, you know I wasn't missing an arm or something, and my kiteboarding wasn't as dynamic or explosive compared to like the top able-bodied person, they saw the bigger picture. And, and, and then, you know, so we started sort of working together in sure. that sense. And I think that's the same with Patagonia with you. You know what I mean? Like you rip, you're a big wave charger. You're like, you know, super stud in the water. There's a million super studs in the water, but what you're doing with your pot, with, with your uh, YouTube stuff and with your podcast and so forth, and especially the breadth of topics that you're exploring, I think it's to Patagonia's credit that they're embracing and supporting you because you're reaching so many more people and so many 
wider areas like what you were talking about earlier and you're you're expanding experience and bringing more people like you're expanding the definition of the tribe sure yeah they're, they're like why are these kids talking about psychedelics and squatty potties this is great for our brand <laughs> but i know and maybe not at first when they put but it is great for the brand it truly is and i think they're starting to realize that because everybody uh can relate at some level to um Sure. Well, I think that what they do a good job of is kind of getting out of their athlete's way, right? Like, I think that there is this marketing in general, um, people are realizing that you you can't try and mold athletes into who you want them to be. Doesn't matter what the brand is. And anyone who tries to do that, the audience can sniff it because consumers are super on it now they understand what's being sold to them and how it's being sold to them so thankfully you're getting deeper more complex stories you're getting smarter people like yourself out there who are gaining platforms because people want to listen to that kind of stuff i think you're absolutely right it's like youtube if you try to make a video that you think your audience will like unless you're just showing boobs or something it fails then they'll like it they'll they'll, they'll, they'll click like on it (laughs) but it won't elicit any kind of it won't get him any deeper than the, yeah. a quick hit. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, taking a shot of, of something versus going out and actually experiencing it, you know? And, sure. Um, yeah, I think. So, so here, but before going to Tahiti, because we can kind of stay on this mm. subject here. So you, um, like, although you're not missing an arm, right? Like mm-hmm. you are still able to have this, this platform and tell your story in a new way because of your disability. How do you continue to deepen and broaden your personality and your interests mm-hmm. in a world that is still constantly um, giving you this positive feedback for this one thing that yeah. that happened to you? You know, like it wasn't something that you that that you chose or sought out. It just like it happened. Yeah, so well, I think that that's bigger than God. That's a good question because you hit on probably my deepest, darkest, like like hardest part to me of my personal existence. And that is, um, sort of you're, you're asking kind of like, how do I communicate? Where do I, what, what's, what's sort of my tribe in a way, I think. And it's, it's not like when, you know, when you're surfer, you're, you go out and you surf and everybody, even if you've been to a place that you don't know a single person, you paddle out, you're a surfer, there's some common thread, you know, uh, EMS working on the ambulance, you have that community. When I worked on the big wave team, there's that community, when I was in cycling, triathlon, uh, kiteboarding, you know, there's these different tribes, right? And everybody kind of at least has some common thread foundation to build a rapport on. And as I lost those things one after another, or got to the point where I would go out and if people didn't know the story, there was immediately kind of a negative judgment, you know, like, oh, he's just the beginner or whatever it is. Uh, you know, I find myself more and more kind of just alone, you know, like just drifting out there, like, who am I? What do I, you know, I know what I'm capable of doing, but, uh, even, even in sponsorships, you know, like, you know, me and somebody else, I've been surfing 30 years, do all the stuff. And then somebody else like, you know, like missing a hand and takes up surfing a few weeks earlier, but they are obviously disabled. You know what I mean? Right. So they're sort of trotted. So then, you know, what, uh, I can't even like, you know, you, you feel unappreciated and, and it, and it's hard, you know? So, and then even like in terms of my wife, you know, like I, as my body starts to go through all these changes, you know, I'm, I, I 
met her kind of before it started really happening 20 plus years ago. Uh, But now, you know, my shoulders are are slouched, you know, I'm really skinny. My belly hangs out because I have no abdominal muscles anymore. And the future, realistically, like, well, as we're saying, she's doing more and more of the physical stuff. So the the whole male-female sort of stereotypical roles are changing. And these are all kind of tough things to deal with, especially for me, the losing the surfing and losing the ability to be a first responder and to be in this position where, where all my life I've been the guy teaching or saving or, you know, demonstrating or whatever. And now all of that is, is going away. And, uh, I don't know what the next step is. I don't know where this leads. I know that it involves communication and I know that it involves, you know, but you were talking about being, being an inspiring person. And I think that a lot of people don't until they know my story, they, they, there isn't necessarily that inspiration. So my challenge is, is how do I connect with people? And this is everybody's challenge when they don't know anything else about you, you know, so that you're not coming in as like this, Oh, they're a pro surfer. They're instantly looking for something or he's a disabled athlete. They're instantly looking for something. I'm kind of stealth. I'm like the ninja guy. Like, you know, I can sneak in and get to know them a little bit. And then when it's right, I can go bang, here's the disability shit. And they go, Oh my gosh, you know, their hair's blown off. And that's, Right. Um, but so what do you, what do you tell yourself in the morning to not fall back into that identity immediately? Of like, being- like, yeah, like do you, because I can tell that like you, you clearly aren't comfortable just like walking into the room like, hi, I'm the disabled guy. Like, this is my story. I'm going to tell like that, you well, know, like you want it, you want people to value you for who you are and that you is constantly changing. Right. So you need to continue to focus on like pushing yourself in those ways. And I mean, it's it, like, it's just easy to I think it's easy when we have that one thing that we're celebrated for to walk into the room and just be that because immediately like people want to know about that and you've nailed it. You know, you've like told that story a thousand times and there it is. But in those, when you're telling those stories, you're not growing. Yeah. Right. Like you're, you're, you, you are ossifying your identity in a, in a way like, and I think that there's obviously times and places to like, because I, I want to know the story, so I yeah, tell yeah. the story. But like, I think that it's admirable that you are constantly seeking to deepen yourself and, and deepen aspects of yourself that are less known or less celebrated. So I'm wondering if you have any any techniques or just like anything that you tell yourself when you yeah. wake up well, that allows you to keep pushing in that direction you you bring up so many good points there and when you're done doing podcasts you should definitely be a psychologist but (laughs) um, because god you just nailed some stuff that so many people never realize about me like it's like you've known me forever it's amazing really truly uh, you know patagonia and any other companies interested in sponsoring this guy like he's (laughs) the real deal uh not not just blowing smoke but 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 to answer your question uh i think that what i find the most rewarding is, um, let me back up. I I do what I do because this is how I move through the world and it's who I am. I'm just an active guy. I like to go outside of my comfort zone. I like to learn. I like to share. I like to be in a position to help people just like you, which you talked about in your podcast last night. Uh, as my disability progresses, how I do that changes dramatically. 
Uh, one of the aspects of that is like you said, using my story. Um, and I think of that almost as like being a musician. Like when you, I'm a pianist, you know, and I, you start playing a song and if you have people who are listening, you can kind of, by how you introduce, uh, sort of the, the different waves of, of, you know, emotion or passion or something into that music, you can kind of play the emotions of the audience to get to a desired kind of, um, response to elicit a certain response you play hard and it's like ah you play soft and it's like ah you know so i can use my story almost like like music in that sense to elicit the change that or or the message that i'm trying to communicate and that's what i'm trying to get better at so when you say what am i what's my i wake up in the morning and what do i what do i think about for the day well uh the first thing i try to do is get my head on straight so i um Every, every morning for 15 years with a few missed days here and there, but uh, will be yoga and meditation and kind of removing clutter, you know, sort of starting from a position of zero. And once you get rid of all the clutter and the what should I do and the who should I be and what's wrong and what's right and, uh, and your body's all tight and tense, it's pretty clear like you just, this is, you feel that connected uh, sort of, you know, everyone talks about this ad nauseum, but the connection to everyone else and everything else and sort of, you kind of know the path when you, when you get all the rocks out of the way, the river flows more smoothly, you know? Yeah. And then, um, and then that's sort of what guides me. But then in order to continue doing that, uh, a couple of things happen. One, I think you develop a sense of responsibility, uh, for these things that give you this experience. Like, like you have gratitude for sure, gratitude and love for the natural world that, you are moving through in whatever way you do it gratitude and love for your own life as you give yourself permission to be who you want to be and do what you want to do and you're not so connected to how is your ego being fed and so forth and then you want nothing more than just to share that message with other people because you realize that that's the only way the world will you know become a better place if everybody can learn to kind of be more true to their authentic self. I mean, I'm sounding really woo-woo here, but... No, it's true, man. It's totally true. It's it's super true. And I think that you are living your life in a way where you are, like... I, I really liked what you said, where you said, where it was like, it's not so much the activity that you're doing, but it's like, what is... What's beyond that? What's behind that? What's the theme that can still be true through your life, even if you get to a point where you can't move at all? Yeah, it's not like the what, it's the sort of why maybe or the how. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah, when you lose the activity, there's a sense of loss and the stuff is fun and you're attached to it. And But everybody's going to go through loss and everyone's going through change. Uh, some at different speeds and some in different avenues, but it's a universal it's a universal condition. We all have that. And I think that to use my story to sort of communicate that or make people be even aware of it, even of their own mortality ultimately, develops that sense of, uh, you know, you, you always know the story of the guy who, or the woman who's, you know, told they only have a year left to live. So they do all this amazing shit. All of us are dying. Like I'm telling you right now, your diagnosis, it is fatal, <laughs> you know? So you better get out there and start doing stuff. You know, people have such a hard time acknowledging that simple fact though. Yeah. The, like the only fact that you can tell someone for sure is that they're going to die. Yeah. But People have a really tough time wrapping around, wrapping their heads around that, or thinking that like you're the bummer because you're talking about it. Right. Now, I like that you have that relationship with death. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm guessing that you were. It was kind of like this forcing function for you to really think about. 
I thought about that before I was even diagnosed. I mean, that's, that's why once I had my diagnosis, it wasn't like this big change in the way I did stuff. It was just sort of a change in the way I perceived what I was doing. You know, I was still pursuing the same activities with the same passion and, and so forth as before. But now I was more easily able to let go of all these doubts and fears that were holding me back from really going full bore. Because, you know, when you dive in with, with 100% commitment into this stuff, it's scary because you think of, well, what if down the line and what if I'm making a mistake and what if, you know, I'm losing the familiar and this is unknown and it's just fear. And I think everybody is just hamstrung with fear. And I think that fear starts with uh, concern with how are they going to be perceived? What does this mean in the future? Will I... Uh, if I do this now, will it stop me from doing this career and all these things that I really think are so important, you know, maybe, but maybe not. But I, if you don't do that, I shouldn't say if you don't do it, if you do do that, if you do give yourself permission to start that adventure, to become a little bit uncomfortable, you know, then it's, it's like you get this, it, first of all, there's a huge weight off your shoulders you know, you know this, I'm preaching to the choir here, you know, but I mean, you have this huge weight off your shoulders and then you start having, you know, shit just starts falling into place. You know, you don't know Maybe you have your goal down the line. Like for you, maybe it was to get into the Mavericks contest or whatever. And that's just a direction you're heading, you know, and, but, it, but if you can be mindful enough to not be attached to that goal, then as you're going in that direction, adventures start happening and things just start falling into place. And then later you'll look back and you'll say, oh, that's exactly why this led to this, led to this, led to this. You don't plan it out ahead of time. You just sort of know the direction you're going. And then you just have to have the courage to take that first step. And then be mindful of what is happening as you're taking those steps. And that's, and that's you say, what do I do in the morning when I wake up? I wake up, I clear my head, and I say, where's that step? That's it. Every day. And... Uh, almost in those, in those words, maybe it's today I'm going to go kite or today we're going to sail the boat or today I need to, you know, obviously make some repairs or something, but you know, some people would say, but yeah, but what, what does that mean down the line? How are you going to get your career? And, you know, I don't know. I'll tell you in 10 years how it happened, but I know that it will happen because I've been doing this for 20 years and now I'm living on a sailboat with a beautiful wife who I've known for a long, long time sailing around the most, you know, some of the most remote, incredible islands, you know, riding waves as I can, uh, that I had always dreamed of. I'm, I'm, I'm living the quote, quote dream in that sense. But 10 years ago, I was working on an ambulance, you know, uh, and doing the big wave stuff and, um, racing bikes, you know, I didn't know that that was going to lead to this, but I'm so grateful for this. And if I hadn't have taken those steps back then, Maybe or maybe not, I would have gotten to where I am now. But, but there's, but here I am. How, how long have you and your wife been together? I always, I always ask her questions to do with time. Twenty-two, Tw- 22, 22 years. years. Yeah. Wow. Um, how has she helped you? Helped me? Yeah. Like how is how or like what's that dynamic like? I'm sure it's a very unique. If you don't mind talking about yeah, it. Yeah, no, not at all. I, I just I think that's really kind of an interesting dynamic to this whole it's this always, whole story. It's always changing. Right. Um, when we first met, it was uh, booty calls. You know, she was hot and <laughs> I was horny. You know, and it was a great, and that was a great dynamic. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lippert, uh, 
please stop your uh, tape recorder. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, it's just me. No one else is listening. Right. Okay, got it. <laughs> you know, and that's what it was for for a while. You know, and then it became, um, uh, you know, she's she was cool with me doing my thing. You know what I mean? And she was becoming a teacher and I was doing all this outdoor stuff. And she was like my buddy that, that she didn't really know how to do a lot of that stuff. You know, she wasn't really super capable in the water, but she was always down to like learn stuff or hang out on the beach. And we called her Sherpa. She would carry all of our kite gear down to the water and hang out and take pictures and everybody, you know, she was just kind of one of the, one of the crew, you know, and just a really down to earth woman. So, so then you start getting into the whole, you have this sense of security and your buddy and your partner, just a typical good relationship from that but it's changed a lot as the disease progresses uh you know and and i started struggling with a lot of issues that i think everybody faces at some point but for me in my you know late 20s early 30s i go from you know modeling and stuff to all of a sudden like people look at you and and it's there's a visceral if that's the right word a a, a very different reaction you know like like you go from literally women coming up and just saying hi i don't know you please have sex with me <laughs> you know you are hot to uh not even looking at you at all you know and when you're young and you're, and you're so used to a certain degree of attention you start thinking well, what's wrong with me you know nicole and i joke we just recently realized i'm like wait a minute I thought I had game all those years, but I didn't have any game. Like, <laughs> like imagine if I had game back then, what would have happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? My mom uh, loves to tell a story about how, like, when she was younger, she was attractive, and she always thought that people just stopped at crosswalks for you <laughs> whenever you were on the corner, and then she reached yeah. a certain age uh-huh. when she realized that that doesn't occur for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, your mom sounds awesome. <laughs> She's very awesome. Um, but yeah, so I mean, what, so what, the, what was that like? Had you guys, were you guys dating at that point? Yeah. Do you want to come on by the way? Yeah. Get over here, Nicole. You're good. Okay. She's got the she's cat the next to her. She's, okay. she's much happier. No, what happened was, is I realized that she didn't like, I, I couldn't believe it. I would literally create all this stuff. And now, you know, we're going back to your own mind, creating stuff that kind of traps you, you know? And I was like, it is not possible. There is no way you are still attracted to me right now. It's impossible you know? Uh, and she's like, well, yeah, I, I am. Cause like, you know, I think you're at, you're a good dude. I want to, you know, and I'd be like, no, but, but you know, look at my stomach, look at my shoulders. And like, I'm getting weaker and stuff. She's like, yeah, whatever. Like, can we go now and go do something fun? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like such a non-issue to her. And it took me a long time to just accept that. Um, now the dynamic has changed even more and it's constantly changing. Uh, what's happened over the last few years with Nicole is she went from not really knowing much other than the very basics on a sailboat where I was basically running everything and I was single handing the boat and it was exhausting physically to me uh, because of the disease and in just in general. Plus it was terrifying because I had to be so switched on all the time. We're crossing oceans. We're not sailing across a little pond, you know? And I saw, sorry, I watched (laughs) one of your vlogs where you're crossing one of the channels and, Uh, and Nicole was like, woo, and you're like, babe, can you please not make that sound right now? Yeah. <laughs> like, you had your serious voice on. Yeah, that was like two months ago. I was like, we were like, you see, she doesn't quite yet get all of the times when we're at certain levels of risk. Uh, like, <laughs> no, I can see you were like white knuckling it on <laughs> the steering wheel going through a serious yeah. pass in French Lizzie Polynesia. Was, Lizzie was 20 minutes behind us on that one, actually. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was gnarly. Like we were... 
there was breaking waves in the channel and the current was against the wind. And uh, if you make a mistake, the boat turns sideways and it gets stuck because the current's sucking it out, but the wind's pushing it in and it just sits in one spot and just rolls like a standing wave in a, in a river or something that a kayak can get pinned into. And the boat just gets flooded and sinks. And I was trying to keep the boat from doing that. And she was filming and having a good time. And yeah, but, but what's happened is Nicole over time has become more and more capable on the boat. And to the point where, uh, it used to be first, she had no idea anything. And I'd be, this is this line. This is this line. This is this line. Line means rope. And then I would say, pull this, pull that. And she said, which one? No, the other one, you know? And then she started getting to the point where she knew to pull the rope, but not necessarily when. So I'd say, okay, now you pull that rope and she'd pull it. But now she knows when to pull the rope, right? So now the problem is, is she just decides, okay, I'm going to pull the rope now. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes she doesn't know that I'm planning to do a maneuver or something. So um, she's gained so much confidence and independence and ability on the boat. She's getting red over there in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are going to have a conversation later. I I can tell. Honey, there's there's one captain on this boat. (laughs) But what's amazing is so it's rewarding to me because it's, she's become so empowered and she's so capable now on the boat, but she's at that level where she is discovering all these new capabilities and and confidences that she never knew she could do, but she doesn't have the experience to understand what she doesn't know yet. So, uh, you know, that comes just from decades of, of, of sailing and wiping out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, exactly. Until you've had your first really big wipeout, you're like, what's the big deal about surfing bigger waves or something, you know? So so have you guys entered into these new sports, like kind of together? You said that you you were doing triathlons together Mm -hmm. and it sounded like you got into sailing before uh, she got into sailing. But it seems like you guys kind of take on each other's interests. Yeah, but here's where the dynamic has changed. That's so awesome. And I think that more and more people are doing this now is originally she would kind of come along and do it a little bit just to kind of play. But mostly she would watch. I mean, she was... I was, I was an adjunct professor of kayaking at San Diego state university and she was one of my students, you know, and then I got in, you know, I was kind of getting more into sailing and teaching sailing. So we both worked at this place where you can learn how to sail. So she learned how to, she was teaching, but mostly like the kids, you know, and the entry level stuff. And I was teaching more like the advanced things. So yes, we would do things together, but not much And surfing. She kind of wasn't really that into it, but she would swim around. But then over time, it started changing and she got into triathlon and then made it to the national championships one year and started doing half Ironmans and stuff. And then in the water, she went from not being really comfortable swimming around. And this is the whole too much comfort is caustic and, you know, and, and why I would sort of bring her out and, and why it's so rewarding to have this life because I would bring her out into a little bit deeper water and a little bit deeper and more and more dynamic water conditions. And then pretty soon she's body surfing with me and within a few years, she was an ocean lifeguard in the city of San Diego and going with us to Todos and Mavericks and places like this, uh, sitting in the, in the sort of, you know, medical boat, but, um, but she was there in these big water environments and comfortable and going with me out on the ski in really big conditions and just kind of, you know, riding tandem. I almost said riding bitch, you know, riding, (laughs) riding tandem with me on these skis comfortably and, and, and not out of ignorance you know, out of, out of, uh, ability that she had gained and learning how to be comfortable in these situations. Sailing is a great example. And now it's almost like accelerating over time. It's like this positive feedback loop. And it's not just Nicole, anybody who takes that first step and just gives themselves permission to charge what it is they want to, that they feel like they should do. And they know that they're afraid of 
they'll have this positive feedback and then it leads to something more and more and more. And now she's doing the sailing and has all these great new abilities in sailing. And so now recently she's like, you know what? I don't want to Sherpa your kite gear anymore. I want to ride. Okay, let's teach you. So very painful marriage therapy case study week of teaching her how to kiteboard. It was pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) But then it clicked and now she's kiting and now she's frother and she's like, oh, we should go check this place. I bet it's really good there, you know? And, and, uh, so, so now it's, it's changing now. She's actually just recently, this is the first time it's ever been publicly announced. Uh, maybe I should have pre-cleared this, but she came to me and, and, and I said, you know, in a couple of years or 10 years, or at some point, we're going to have to do a big ocean passage if we want to bring this boat back. And it's going to be probably really hard for me. Like passages are getting really hard two or three days underway physically is, is like, you might as well smack me in the head with the two by four, you know, for, because of your standing so much and it's just everything constant back and forth and yeah. weight distribution and core strength amount and of work. Yeah. You have to still pull on lines and grind and, and move around. It all just becomes really hard. And Nicole said, well, you know what? I'd, I'd be stoked. Why don't I get a couple other women who kind of know how to sail and, and we'll sail about, you know, we'll sail it back to Hawaii. So she went from not even being sure if she could even do this trip with me doing everything to like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind trying to captain and sail a boat across the Pacific Ocean. And that's a huge fundamental shift. And I think that it's a great uh, a story, parable, I don't know the word, example of, of how you can, each of us as an individual can influence positive change by just giving people permission to do what it is they want to do at their speed. And then those people accepting that and, and having the courage to get past that little bit of fear to them. You were talking about uh, uh, how much it sucks to jump in the water in the morning when it's really cold. And then Dave Goggins, he's this Navy SEAL dude. He's gnarly. He has this saying, he says, embrace the suck, you know, and it's just recognizing that that is part of the experience. That is part of the growth. Everything isn't eye candy, little girls in bikinis. Sometimes it's hard work and that's part of the adventure and that's the fun. And then you don't know why necessarily, but later you look back when you've gotten to somewhere, wherever it is, maybe not where you're initially set out, but it's where you're supposed to be. And you don't realize why you got there. You couldn't have pre-planned it, but you look back and you see all the little steps across the river that you hop to get to the other side. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like you both have a very good relationship with learning. Yeah. It's every, I mean, I mean, that's just like you, I would say that from what I've gleaned so far is that you've both mastered that art and more than any single art, it's like looking at what, what skill needs to be learned and how to actually learn it. Um, given, given real circumstances too. Like, I think that's another thing is you, you, it seems that you, you have to look at your situation through a sober lens at all times. Right. And like really recognize like what is it that I can do? What is it that I can't do? And what that I can't do right now can I put into the can do category yeah. through work? Maybe, but honestly, that's just almost autopilot. Uh, mm. It's just kind of how I am. Um, even before my disability really progressed, you know, like with you, you want to go out and, and, and surf bigger waves or better waves and okay, why I need to be better able holding my breath or paddle harder or have a better equipment, you know, so you're constantly going through that process. And for me, it's the same way. It's just, it, it might be, how do I wash my hair? Like I didn't take a shower for a year, um, recently. And, uh, I mean, I'd rinse off, you know, a little bit when I got out of the water, but I'm in the water every day. Like, what do I need to, you know? 
And then finally I went to take a shower and it was the first time I'd washed my hair in a year. And I realized that I had lost the ability to raise my arm up to wash my hair. So I'm standing in the shower with my handful of shampoo and I go, well, what am I going to do? And I was like, okay, well, I'll bend over, you know? So I just, luckily the yoga paid off and I washed my hair that way. And it's just sort of that you're, whether it's you want to drop in on a bigger wave or whether it is you need to wash your hair and you can't lift up your arms, you just know what you need to do and you just figure out a way to do it. And, you know, I, I don't really think I put any conscious you know, thought into, I need to find ways. But the, the bigger challenge for me is not being attached to washing my hair standing up. Do you see what I mean? Like yeah. I would, I, if I, where you get caught up is when you start saying, I can't lift my hand up to wash my hair. What does this mean? I can no longer wash my hair. I won't look good. And then people won't like me anymore and I'll smell bad. And my whole life will, you know, and you just sort of spiral. You get attached to the story. Yeah. Like you build this little story inside your head that may not ever actually happen, but then all of a sudden your identity is attached to it and then you, yeah. you freak out. You have this, yeah, exactly. You were talking about in your podcast how a lot of times fear and anxiety is just a response to a perceived danger, whether the danger actually exists or not. It's the same with the perceived with you're asking about my relationship with Nicole. I have a lot of clutter in my head and stories about how there's no way we're going to be together in the long run because I can't yet let go of the thought that there's no way somebody would want to be with somebody who needs that level of care. You know, how I could go from being the strong, capable sort of provider person to being needing help with day-to-day stuff, you know, obviously when we talk about it, it seems so silly, but it's still, I have that response before I recognize it. How do you how do you actually verbalize it? Because I think that like your ability to to say what an incredibly vulnerable statement like that becomes less scary when you put it out there when you say it right. But I think that a, what what is most frightening are these stories that we haven't actually intellectualized. Yes. Right. Or even like asking like one one thing that I like to do when I'm scared of doing something or like I'm afraid of what people think of something that. Like, like you asked earlier, um, about like how I feel about talking about psychedelics and sex and some of these kind of taboo subjects on the podcast. Yeah. And I do sometimes get a little worried, like who, how's this going to be perceived? But I'll ask the question, who am I actually afraid of? Yeah. Like who's the actual person that I'm afraid of to say? And, and then more times than not, it's like. That kid who heckled me in fifth grade, who I still, I'm like, wait, screw that kid. Right. But like, if we can actually shine a light on the monsters in the closet, they become less scary. You know, thank you for that. I'd never really thought of a good way to explain that. And that's an excellent example. Yeah. It's what is it that you're, it's, it's letting go of those judgments. And I think for me personally, a lot of times it's me judging myself. Unfortunately, as my disease progresses, I get a lot of stuff that I perceive as reinforcing feedback that my worst fears are coming true, you know, like, um, for example, paddling out on a boogie board and having surfers, you know, shoot darts at me, you know, because (laughs) I'm on, I'm this weak guy on a boogie board, you know, but then I find that if I just don't care, like, and I just surf, eventually I'll, I'll get my waves. I'll ride. I'll have, you know, I, I honestly, boogie boarding is fun, but it's just to me, not the same as surfing. Even if I had all my muscle, I don't think it would be, but you know, stand up paddle, whatever it is, you know, how, how you experience the world. So 
yeah, I mean, I don't want to make it all about me. It's really not, but I think you're right. I think it's, it's whether it's anxiety or whether it's self, uh, conscious about, uh, you know, trying something that love that sort of fear. It's about recognizing that you are feeling fear because you have a response to a perceived situation and that perception while you can look for outside uh, stuff to reinforce it, really it's coming from inside. You're, you're, you're creating your own fight or flight or what was it? Fight or flight or fuck thing you said. <laughs> yeah. Fight. I think it's fight, flight, fuck or freeze. Yeah. Fight, Those flight, are... fuck or freeze. You know, it's all, you know, we're, we're, um, we're not so different. You and I, right. <laughs> you know, everybody. Uh, and I just think some people are, they don't know they, they're, it, you know, the key I, to me, honestly, I'm not, I'm not a guru or some kind of, legend guy, but I honestly believe if everybody would just take a few minutes just to breathe and meditate and just kind of be more present, it becomes clear so quickly that clutter that you start to be aware of that constant dialogue going on in your mind, you know, and you, you know, there's some preaching to the choir here, but maybe somebody's listening, hasn't thought of this and, then you know, and they're thinking, but I, I know I want to do this, but you know, and they're on the edge and stuff and, and they want to know what's the first step. Well, the first step is to stop worrying about the step and just breathe a little bit and clear your mind a little bit and be aware of when you're having this fight, flight, freeze, or fuck, you know, response to thoughts. And, and then you realize they're just thoughts. Holy shit. I don't have to, I don't need those shackles anymore. You know? Yeah, man. Quickest way to travel is by thinking, right? Was that, is that the way that it goes? The no, fastest way to travel is just by thinking something new, right? Transport yourself to a completely different place. I hadn't even considered that. I like that though, right? Yeah, it's good. Um, so we, we can wrap up here soon, but like, I want to actually dig into like the specifics of, because you're, you're faced with that, what you were just talking about, like actually noticing your thoughts more often than most, or, or I mean, maybe we're all forced or we all think about it but mine are easier to believe exactly yeah um do you have like a morning routine or like something to really keep yourself on this track yeah it kind of started by accident though like for me my body as i lose muscle other muscles become unbalanced and really tense and when i wake up in the morning i'm in considerable pain usually so I started just kind of stretching, like I take a hot shower and then just start doing stretching. And over the years I learned that if I relaxed the muscle to, to gain more sort of mobility rather than trying to reach further and, you know, do more an American, I'm ah, give me, give me, you know, <laughs> I'm accomplishing, I'm not stretching right. You know, I just gave myself permission to some days be a little bit tight and other days to be more loose. And I'd go, huh, okay, today I'm tight, today I'm loose, you know, and I just sort of had this positive feedback. And then one day... I was taking some classes in, in, at a JC, you know, after I graduated, but just to sort of expand knowledge. And, and, uh, I, 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 um, I took a yoga class, you know, and it was like, she's like, now you need to do, you know, blah, 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 some Sanskrit word. And, and I'd be like, what's that? And she's like this. And she would like do the stretch that I was doing. And I'm like, no way. That's like a yoga thing. I'm doing yoga all these years. I just didn't even know it. You know, I thought yoga was hundred degrees and you have to go, you know, and, but it wasn't yoga is just, it's a, it's a, a developing mindfulness through movement is one of sort of the limbs of yoga, you know? And 
so peanut butter sandwich, you know, I got into right. it. I studied all of it and I read, you know, all the, the sutras and all this kind of stuff. But, but really when it comes down to it, to answer your question, every morning I get up and I practice yoga, whether that is standing still and taking a few deep breaths and just being mindful of where the tension is and trying to release it mentally, or whether it's a full hour, two hour, three hour, whatever practice of, of, of movements, you know, of asanas and, uh, it, it, and they're not fancy. It doesn't matter. I'm not trying to be, there's no competition. Right. Yoga is just whatever you can do. And that's, that's, but it seems like it's really helped you tremendously. Tremendously. Well, you know, from a performance standpoint, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't be able to do any of the stuff I'm doing because it, it you know, I'd be always injured, you know, or, you know, it, look, you, there's two ways you can accomplish a task. You can gain strength and more force, or you can remove resistance, you know, and yoga is about removing the resistance. And as I lose strength, I better learn how to, you know, remove resistance. So that helped. And then through that, it led to meditation because I realized a big element of this was the mindfulness that comes. So I started having longer and longer meditative practices and Liz, you know, was a big influence in that. She talks about it a lot in her upcoming book, by the way, Swell, which I think you can pre-order now and everybody should. It's going to be fantastic. But, you know, uh, she talks about how everybody has their own voyage that, you know, their own, um, vehicle through life. And, and, uh, and I was like, wow, you know, in fact, I, I should probably give her specific props for this. I was going through a specifically difficult time with the progression of my disease. I had lost surfing. I had lost EMS. I had lost the big wave stuff. I'd lost all these things in a very short, quick period of time. And I was struggling with it really hard. And that's when I met Liz through some mutual friends. And she wrote me this amazing email. I still keep it on my desktop. And it wasn't unique Liz thoughts, but it was stuff that she had gleaned through her own personal struggles, which she talks about in the book. And, um, and it was exactly what I needed to do. Like she got it and she got it very quickly, uh, just from reading an article about me, you know, and, and, and just kind of like cut through all the shit and said, well, here's, and I was just like, well, I'm just standing here, you know, whatever the word is naked, you know, basically before I'm like, how does this girl know? But that's what started me with the formal kind of deeper meditative practices, which ultimately led to uh, sailing. So I guess I guess the story is if you want to sail to Tahiti, you should probably start doing yoga. No, I'm just dude, <laughs> you are a fucking Zen warrior, and I'm so happy to have met you. Well, thank you. Seriously, man, it's really uh, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to play you out with a song by The Devil Makes Three called Gracefully Face Down. I also need more music, so if any of you are musicians out there, head over to my website, kyle.surf, and email me. I will link to your band page in the show notes on my site. You can get in touch with Ryan on Facebook. Also, check out their YouTube series, To Afloat. That's T-W-O, Afloat. My guests always love hearing from you. Uh, I'm now doing a monthly uh, newsletter where just once a month I send you the best books I've been reading, podcasts I've been listening to, documentaries I've been watching. So if that interests you, head over to my website, kyle.surf, and check it out. All right. Happy New Year, everyone. Don't drink and drive. Kiss someone you love, and I'll see you soon.